You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. Welcome to the show. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, on an all-new, a brand-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast coming right at you, crafted specifically for the high-achieving individual that you are. We are joined by yet another amazing individual, my friend Trevor Blake, who claims he is no different than you and I, even though on the surface of things, it may not appear that way. He's created financial success and independence after selling his first company of three for over 100 million dollars. He's fortunate to have been married over 35 years to someone who still makes his heart skip a beat when she walks in the room, and that's a little something we're diving into in this episode as well. He's achieved his dream of creating an animal rescue sanctuary and of writing best-selling books and screenplays. We're going to be diving into that as well. Really cool stories around that. Now, at the end of the day, he suffers from all of the fears and the hang-ups, just like all of us do. So what has allowed him to overcome them? Specifically, tools and techniques, what he calls the practical magic. We're diving into all of this good stuff today, and his intent is to share it with all of us. We are amplifying Trevor's message today, which is exactly why I'm excited to have you here tuned into this episode. As always, I got to make sure that you're amplifying this message because if Trevor's sharing this stuff, we need to make sure we're sharing this stuff, right? That's exactly why I'm hosting Trevor today. That's exactly why you're tuned into this. You have the opportunity right here, right now to share this with the people in your circle. I know you're a high achiever. I know you're a high performer. I know that you know that proximity is key. So you surround yourself with the best of the best. Make sure you're sharing it with them because they might not have known about decoding success. They might not know about Trevor Blake and this magic that he could offer us today. On top of that, if you haven't left a rating and review yet, that would be absolutely amazing. And yes, I know I'm jumping into all of this before we even get into the content. So now without further ado, I bring to you my friend, Trevor Blake. Trevor, first and foremost, I appreciate your willingness to hop on here and have your success decoded today. So thank you for joining us. That's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. So Trevor, first question for you straight off the bat. We always kick off the show. It actually sets the tone in a way, and I'm really excited to learn how you personally define success. And You start with the, probably the most difficult question of all because... Um, <laughs> I think success is defined by other people for us. So, so people will describe me as a serial entrepreneur because I've built and sold several companies. I've, I'm actually on company number five right now. So I think people look at material side of, of, of life and they say, okay, he drives a fancy car, lives in a fancy place, and he's, he's built and sold three companies for you know, a big number. Total value is 300 million. Um, but for me, success is a very different thing. Success is, uh, for me, is the impact you make on the journey. It's, it's basically, you know, in my companies, I've always used the same sort of, I'll call it mission, vision, values, because people talk that language these days, but it's a mantra, really. And, and the mantra is always the same. It's make a positive difference in someone's life, have fun doing it, and share in the material rewards that come as a result of that. And that's really how I define success, and that's who I am, basically. I love that. You know, I very much so align with what you just mentioned, and I want to start with the whole, the impact you make on the journey, as you just mentioned, right? What do you feel like needs to be in place personally? And this has actually been something that's been coming up a lot in my life um, recently. So I'm always curious to hear individuals' perspective on this, but what do you feel like, com- what, what needs to be in place for you to make an impact in someone else's life? Do you feel like your cup needs to be full to the utmost extent before doing so? No, not at all. It's, it, you know, I've, I've never met an entrepreneur that set out to be, or successful entrepreneur, I should say, that set out to be 
an entrepreneur. Um, I include myself in that. You know, I, basically, the really good entrepreneurs find something that needs fixing, and then they set about fixing it, even if they're not qualified to do so. That's certainly true in my case. I've never really been qualified to run or build any of the companies that I've built. Something gets under your skin, you know, something that needs improving or something that doesn't exist that you wish did exist, and you just say, you know what, I'm going to go and do that. And, you know, the world is full of fantastic stories, you know, and they're never far away from us. The Richard Branson story of how he started his airline or Sarah Blakely's story about how she started her company spanks you know they, they all started because they were irritated about something that didn't exist that should have existed and so they said about fixing it and i've done the same with my companies too it's really you know i think it's hard to it's hard to find motivation if you set about doing what you think you're good at or doing what you think you would love to do the motivation is very different than when you said about you know from almost a, a negative standpoint i feel i feel pretty angry that this thing needs fixing so i'm going to go and fix it that's that's always how i've approached everything Right. I love that. Now you mentioned the word motivation and I have, you know, one thing that I feel like we have in common is many moons ago, we were both motivated by girls. And one thing I read about you was that at nine years old, you wrote a screenplay for um, someone that you were in school with. So let me ask you, let's go back. Let's, let's take this back. I want to understand your journey full spectrum here. What was the dream back then? Now, obviously nine years old, we're in elementary school. Maybe you don't want to talk elementary school, but um, how about high school? Who was Trevor back then? Well, actually, I don't mind talking about elementary school because I remember it very clearly. Her name was Petra, and there's no greater motivation than wanting to get a kiss from a girl. So, that, so I, went to, <laughs> I went to extreme lengths of, of writing, a, I think it was probably like a seven-page screenplay that I thought would impress her. Um, the screenplay never went anywhere, of course, and I didn't get the kiss, so it was a, it was a bit of a knockback. Um, but, it, but in uh, high school, you know, I found myself in a, in a, a rather strange situation. Um, I didn't think of it that way at the time. I just thought I was having an adventure. So uh, my father was unemployed my whole life, and my mother was um, diagnosed with cancer. She was given six months to live when, she, when I was only about seven years old. And at the time, we were living uh, above a store in, in um, uh, Liverpool in the UK, and uh, and we basically were evicted and we escaped in the dark of night. And in those days you could drive, you know, 60 miles out into the country and basically disappear because there was no, no system of identification and that sort of thing. And that's basically what we did. And we landed somehow in a derelict farmhouse. And so uh, that was all wonderful for me. It was a fantastic adventure. I went from the, you know, the sort of crumbly concrete of the city to this amazing, like, like falling in Narnia it was for me, this amazing, beautiful countryside in, in North Wales. Um, but at the same time, I found that I was a, um, an Englishman in um, a, pro- a province of the UK, Wales, where at the time they didn't want the English to be moving in because the English were buying up a lot of the properties for make- and turning them into vacation homes. And there was a real toxic atmosphere about that whole thing. And they didn't stop to listen to me where I would say, well, actually, we haven't got a vacation home. We're living in a, in a derelict farmhouse um, with, with crumbling walls that you can see through and, and hardly any roof left on it. Um, but they didn't want to hear that. They just assumed that because I'm English. I've, I've, you know, we're buying a property and we're bad people. And so I suffered a lot of uh, bullying as a result of that. And, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are hundreds of stories. I'm, I'm a great, um, uh, I, I thirst for autobiographies, so, um, or biographies rather. So I've, I've read hundreds in my life. And this is a common story about how people find themselves in difficult circumstances. And a lot of the most successful adventurers and business people in, in life, they, they, they were bullied at one point or they suffered prejudice or they suffered some form of intolerance. Uh, and that was certainly true in my life in a place where you wouldn't really expect it. And so these, uh, these, these gangs who were, their, their theme was home rule for Wales. They would hunt me down basically. And um, I found that, um, 
I, I one time escaped them and I, I ended up in the uh, town library, which was a converted, used to be a prison and had been converted into a library. And that's one place that these idiots were never going to go. And, and that really turned my life around because I found these reference shelves full of biographies and I would just stay in there for a few hours and, until all the heat passed over, if you like. And I would read these biographies and they just inspired me because these people had even worse situations than I thought I had. Um, you know, I thought the world was ending around me uh, and I realized that really this was nothing. And it gave me the strength to, to pretty much ignore what was happening to me instead of fighting and, and running just to ignore it. And eventually it went away and, um, and it changed my life. So I was, I, I got inspiration from all these fantastic stories from, you know, modern, modern adventurers, but also historical adventurers like, uh, Madam CJ Walker and, you know, people like that, just to, people who overcame really terrible circumstances and did wonderful things with their lives. And I felt that that's what I want. I didn't want to turn out like my father, who, who was unemployable. And um, he turned out like his father, who was unemployable for all different reasons. Not necessarily bad reasons, but that's how it turned out. I didn't want that for me. And so I used the inspiration of other people who had overcome their uh, difficult circumstances to, you know, in, to, to gain in myself the motivation to get out of that version of quicksand. Right. So first and foremost, I appreciate the transparency and you sharing that. And I have a whole bunch of questions that spurred from this. The first one I want to start with is along the lines of your mother having cancer. That's one thing that we both have in common. And it's unfortunate that we both have that in common. You know, I'm, I'm ready for the day that cancer is curable, right? It's treatable, but I'm waiting for the day it's curable. Um, my, my question to you is, and again, I'm going to ask this a little selfishly because I was probably fresh out of high school when my mother was diagnosed with cancer. I want to say that I was maybe a freshman or potentially a sophomore in college at that point, you know, whenever you're 18, 19 years old, um, I, I kind of ran from it, you know, I, I was running from it. And at that point, you know, I'm living home with my family. So I see it every day. Uh, I'm curious how you dealt with that as an individual, you know, uh, we're and also how old were you at that point in your life when your mother had cancer? Well, I was seven when I found out about it. Um, my oh, father... Wow. My father told my sister and, and told her not to tell her two brothers. And of course, the first thing she did, and that's why he told her, of course, he hadn't got the courage to do it himself. And so she came running, we were playing in a field and she came running to, to us and, and told, she said, you know, mommy's got cancer and she's going to die in six months. And that was basically the first time I heard about it. Um, it, it, it's odd, really, because in those days, we're talking about the uh, late 60s, um, you know, the, the word cancer wasn't to be spoken in public. It was always a taboo word. And so people just whispered it, you know, behind their hands and that sort of thing. So it was never, ever talked about at the home. No one, no one ever mentioned it. Um, and there was, you know, time went by, maybe, maybe after the first um, operation and then chemotherapy after about three months. You know, we all know what's going on, but still nobody's really talking about it. Um, and it was my mother. It was her strength that brought it up. And she sat me down. Um, I think she must have done it individually with my siblings as well. And she sat me down and said, look, this is a real thing. But let me tell you this. I am not going anywhere. Just because the doctors say I have to die in a few months, I'm not going to. I'm not leaving you until you grow up and you're safely out into the world. And she was a woman of a world and she meant it. And uh, she lived, she fought against so many uh, prognoses that said, okay, this is it, this is the end. Several operations, lots of chemotherapy, lots of radiotherapy. But she didn't actually uh, go through her transition until I was um, 21, just, just, just turned 21 when she fight, And I was the last one to sort of go out into the world, if you like. Um, and, and her last act for me was introducing me to my wife uh, in the chemotherapy ward. And I'm still married to, to, her, to my mother's chemotherapy nurse. So, you know, you know I, my view of it was always not that it was a negative thing or a bad thing because I was able to observe this amazingly strong woman who 
showed me what the word indefatigable means uh, by her actions because, you know, she didn't sit at home moaning and groaning about the pain. She decided that we were starving as kids because my father wasn't working. And so she, she hobbled, literally she had the bone mets, metastases in, the, in her leg bones, and she hobbled with a stick, you know, five miles every day to work part-time in a delicatessen. And sometimes when I could, I would walk with her. And she, she never moaned or complained or t- told her, you know, or... or uh, use this to look at life negatively. It was the opposite, because she knew her time was short. She pointed out every bird, every flower, every tree. Every time we met somebody, she did an act of kindness for them. Um, so it was so inspiring for me. And I, I've t- I took all. I, I call it the power of the feminine. Actually, it's a much overused phrase, but that's that's what I described it to myself as when I was growing up. And that power of the feminine has been very important to me in my life, and particularly in my businesses, because. I don't think there's any greater strength than, than a, um, a woman who wants to take care of her children to overcome all of those prognoses for all of those years until finally the three kids are left home and are safe and sensible, and then she's ready to leave. It was, it's a remarkable story. It's, it's at the beginning of my first book, Three Simple Steps, um, because that she, she was the biggest inspiration in my life and then handed me over to the second biggest inspiration in my life, which is my wife. Right. You know, one thing that I find as a quote unquote common trend amongst, um, and obviously the the one closest to me is my mother. And it seems like your mother embodied the same characteristics or the same mindset when it came to battling cancer. You know, they, they had this faith, right, that they were going to get through it in ways. And, you know, it's really incredible to hear that from you. Every single time I hear a story like this, like uh, it just, it hits me deep down. It hits me in the core. So like I said, I appreciate the transparency and I want to touch base on what you were mentioning earlier about biographies. Is there, and you know what, like I said, many times already, this resonates with me on a super high level because one thing that I've done this year, 2020 specifically, is transition from reading all of these like self-help, you know, business type books to, to reading more so along the lines of autobiographies, biographies, such as, you know, books on um, Andrew Carnegie, books on the Titans of America and things of that nature. So I'm curious, what do you feel like is one biography that stands out to you the most above all? Oh, I can't pick just one. Um, Unfortunately, if if I was to pick one, it would it would be Madam C. J. Walker's biography because of of, of her her incredible difficulty she had to overcome. I'm sure your listeners know who she is, but if if not, I can give you a thumbnail sketch. I mean, she was born to slaves. Um, once once slavery was abolished, it really wasn't for the people who were the ex-slaves because they weren't allowed to work and they weren't allowed to carry knives and forks. I mean, it was really just this, it was just the same culture but in a different name. Uh, and in that environment, uh, you know, she was uh, abused and then uh, pregnant by fourteen. Um, she was so badly abused that her hair started to fall out. In in, in you know in a, in a it, for me the indescribable mountains to overcome to go for, to, just to survive. But not only did she just want to survive, she was so embarrassed that her hair had fallen out that she started inventing hair tonics and one of them worked. And so she went door to door selling it to people, which was totally against the law in those days for, for, for someone of her background to do that. And uh, she went door to door selling it. And, and eventually she was successful and she became America's first female millionaire, which today would be a billionaire, of course. You know, a just remarkable um, determination to overcome what seems insurmountable, um, you know, objectives, insurmountable um, challenges in life. So it's that, that would have to be my favorite because it was the first one that really inspired me. But there's been, been hundreds. And uh, recently I was reading a book uh, that was, it was 
sort of a book that it was a bit like um, Think and Grow Rich, where where some guy um, takes a look at what makes people successful and then thinks he's figured it out and writes a book about it and the book becomes successful and he looks successful as a result of it. A very similar book is a recent book um, looks at the habits of uh, successful entrepreneurs and and multimillionaires. And what jumped out of the pages at me was that they, they all all of their answers when they were asked, you know, how do they spend their spare time? They all read voraciously, but they but but uh, most of them read biographies. That was their number one book of choice was biographies. Interesting. So it, it, yeah, it is interesting. So it was a book about the habits of the successful sort of thing. And a smile because, I mean, I've, I've probably got six on the go right now. I love that. Now, what's that book called that you were mentioning is like Think and Grow Rich? You know, I can't, I can't remember the title, otherwise I would, have told, I would have given it to you. It was, it was something like uh, the habits of the habits of successful entrepreneurs, something like that. It's a female writer. Um, if, it, if, it, if the name pops back in my head during that conversation, I'll, <laughs> which you often I love that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to follow up with you on that one via email. We're going to talk about that because I, I love recommendations. So uh, definitely. Well, I, actually gonna... used, I actually used, I, I plagiarized a little bit of it in my new book, Secrets to a Successful Startup, which is launching... Uh, February the fourth. Actually, so Amazon is already shipping books. I'm told. I don't have a copy of it myself yet. Um, but if that sounds like a like a, a flagrant um, a selfish advertisement for my book, all my proceeds go to cancer research and development. So it's not. It's it's all for a good cause. Everybody wins. Um, but I, but there's a part in there. There's a chapter in there where I talk about. You know, I was I was prepared for success before success came. And I think that's very very important in life to prepare yourself mentally for for uh, you know imagining what life would be like when you're successful. And so preparing yourself for that. There's certain tools and tricks that you can use to do that and and so um i've used a little bit of her information in in one of the final chapters of that book so so if, i can't remember the name you can just get secrets to a successful startup and that it's, it's basically how do the successful what are the habits of the successful in, in life how do they spend their time and it's really quite eye-opening um you know you won't find you won't find really successful people on twitter or anything like that you'll find you'll find them studious they don't work hard they they, they work smart um, they work just a few hours a day they dedicate at least an hour a day to to reading they are out in nature an awful lot so when they're when they're not at their computer or in their office they're out walking amongst the trees i mean these are very, you know they all said basically the same things so there's half a dozen really important habits that you, and that's how i spend my life basically i don't work more than five hours a day i spend a lot of time out in nature so let's talk about that actually i'm, I'm really curious I, I saw that something along the lines of you never employing anyone and never working more than five hours a day now people that are tuned into this are gonna say well how the hell is that possible right um oftentimes society tells us to hustle 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 put in more time than your competitors or you know the people in your space is probably the proper political way to to frame that so i'm curious how do you get to a point where you can only work five hours a day like, how how is that possible for you? Well, it's not only possible; it's necessary because of the way the brain works. I'm a great student of um, uh, peak brain performance. I have all my life trying to trying to um, you know be the best of myself. Um, it's it's proven scientifically, and there's lots of uh, easy. You can just search. Just Google, just go, just do an online search. It's very easy to pull up articles that show that in the typical office in America, where people work between nine and nine and a half hours on average a day, the only amount of productivity is two hours and fifty-three minutes on average. The rest of the time is, and, and a lot of a lot of that two hours and fifty minutes will be spent sitting in a meeting room with with you know. My favorite, my favorite saying about it is listening, you know, sitting in a boardroom where everything that can be said has been said, but not everybody said it yet. And it goes round and round the table and you, it's just mindless, mind numbing stuff. So, so first of all, people aren't as productive 
in the workplace as they think they are. And then secondly, scientifically, it's proven that you can't concentrate for more than a short period of time. Some, some books like um, Mind Matters say we can't concentrate for more than 10 minutes. Other books say two hours is the maximum. When I started my first company, I came out of the corporate world. And of course, you know, I was indoctrinated into the, into the ways of the corporate world. And I found that without the distractions of the coffee pot, the, the water cooler, the, the, the mindless meetings and all that, that I had so much time on my hand. And I started to get guilty about it because I'd sit in front of my computer waiting for an email or sit by the phone waiting for the phone to go and I thought I must be doing something wrong because now I'm boss of my own company surely I should be 10 times busier than I was before but I found the opposite to be true and I, f- I find that um, when you work on your own you're very productive and, and you, burnout is a real issue if you if you try to spend eight hours a day by yourself in your own office you, you'll, you'll pretty much burn out and get depressed very quickly and there's lots of books to, lots of science to support that um, and so what I started to do was to to read books that said how to how to keep the brain at peak performance during the day. And and the way we do it is we, we have dedicated work periods that stretch no more than two hours. And then we have dedicated leisure periods that can be anything from half an hour to two hours. And we split the day up like that. And it's essential because in the dedicated uh, work periods, you know, a lot of analysis is done in the dedicated leisure period where we were, I, I use an alarm. So the alarm goes and, and a little, um, little screen comes up and says time for a walk. I, I lock my office. I leave my phones behind and I go for a walk just for, I take my dogs for a walk for half an hour or an hour in that distraction period, as it's called is where the magic happens. And the thing I was struggling with for two hours, the solution pops into my head when I'm not thinking about it. And so it, what we do is we split our day up amongst dedicated work periods, dedicated, um, uh, distraction periods. And, and that's how it works. And I've never worked more than five hours a day. And in fact, um, I, right now I'm running two companies at the same time. I don't work more than three hours on, on those two companies because there's no need. Um, and there's several reasons for it. One is the, the break, the, the breaking up of the day where you, you then put yourself in a position to earn these magic solutions that pop into your head, make you look like a genius. Um, the second is the way I structure companies allows the companies to pretty much run themselves after a period of time. I mean, we live in a, in an era where technology allows us to go back to the way we used to live before the first industrial revolution. In, in those days, we all lived a village centric lifestyle where, um, you know, we made, we, we, we made art and crafts or, or, or uh, harvested or whatever we had to do to survive in our little village uh, area where everybody looked after each other. And it was only the invention of the machine that, it, that uh, turned things into commuting and, and office buildings next to the machine and um, people working long hours because the machine had to run on all the hours of daylight available because there was no lighting system. So, so the first industrial revolution completely destroyed that village centric culture. And now we, now we can flip it. So, so we're in an, um, an era now where we can use technology so we can get back to that village center. We can sit at our computer and engage the world immediately. And we can do it in a short period of time. We can structure the company and the company of the structure is very, very important, which is the, the probably the biggest message of secrets to a successful startup. It, how you structure a company using um, vendors and contractors um, rather than employers makes all the difference in the world because most startups that I work with, that I help out, that I coach, um, they all make the same basic mistakes at the beginning. And one of them is they hire people or too many people too soon. It's very bad for cash flow, of course, but the worst effect of it is that the guy who had the great idea that set up the company in the first place, he spends all his time being a father figure to his employees to keep his employees happy. And there's no th- no no energy being put onto the growth of the company itself. And so if you structure the company differently using a what I call a hub model, which is explained in the book, um, you are, it frees you up to concentrate on 
growth of the business and and the, and it becomes so much more enjoyable then and you you don't need all of these hours of the day because you haven't got employees you haven't got employees to worry about because the vendors are perfectly capable of working on their own without your supervision they just need direction and and, and uh, enthusiasm um you're not spending all your time in hr meetings talking about these mind-numbing performance and appraisal systems all of that goes away and so it frees you up to you actually say my god i've got three hours to think about marketing to think about growth to do all these things which i've never been able to do before so it's it's a combination of of those things that allows you to have the shorter it's not a shorter work day it's just shorter amounts of work in the business day and so you split the day up between things that are good for your brain and things that are good for for the business and then you also structure the company so that if you walk away nobody notices right i, I you know first and foremost Again, that hits me right in the core because my next question to you is along the lines, and maybe this is different for everyone, but you know, for me personally here, I would work eight plus hours a day. When I left my corporate job, I, I felt like I needed to put in as much time as possible. So I would, you know, bury my face in my freaking laptop and I would just get at, you know, get after it day in, day out, hour by hour. And what that led to was a depression right? It led to self-deprecating thoughts. It led to a whole bunch of negativeness in my life, bigger than a business perspective, but like personally, it was starting to bring about a lot of negativity and darkness into my life. So I started to ease up on myself, but then I was posed with the issue that I felt like I wasn't doing enough with the time that I was putting in. And I, I drastically cut my hours and don't get me wrong. There's sometimes you can catch me on my laptop at one, 2 AM, you know, just to make sure that I'm meeting deadlines every now and then. But, um, how do you get over the feeling like you're not doing enough if someone is to adopt? that five hour day you know what I'm saying yeah absolutely because I know that feeling and I've gone I've gone through it um so discipline is essential and, and discipline doesn't come easily to most people and I can say it definitely doesn't come easy to me I'm, I'm at heart a fairly laid back or some people might say lazy <laughs> person um and so so the discipline to split the day up doesn't come easy and the bigger discipline which leads to the balanced life I, I believe success and balanced life go hand in hand they're not mutually exclusive um you know, in a balanced life, and I mean, happy home relationships, you know, all, all, all that that goes, all that that means. Um, the secret to that is to be able to sit, is, is to stop whatever it is that you're doing. So the way, the way I do it is five o'clock every evening, it's over. I don't, there's nothing in the world that's so important that I have to go to my phone or go to my computer to deal with it in the night, at nighttime or in the early hours of the morning. There really isn't. It can all wait to the next day. So what I do is five o'clock is done. I write myself a priority list for the next day and I, I have my list of, of, of tasks. I lock my door, my separate office door. It's very important if you work from home, particularly I've always worked from home. So if you work from home, it's very important that you have an office that you can lock and uh, not be tempted to go in there. I have dedicated computer for work, dedicated computer for home, dedicated uh, cell phone for work, dedicated cell phone for home. So so once I lock it off at five o'clock, my, my business cell phone can ring all at once, but it's not going to interfere with my balanced life and vice versa during the daytime when I'm working. I'm not taking personal calls, which are distracting me from what I'm doing because everything is kept separate. So you have to box it, compartmentalize everything. It's very, it's really important. So when you get, to, when I get to five o'clock, it's over, and um, I, I am then dedicated to my family and my family life. And there's nothing that will interrupt that. That requires tremendous discipline. And so I schedule everything. Um, I use online calendar tools. I use, you know, I still use an old-fashioned um, sort of. Uh, 
daily reminder where I write down things when they pop into my head at night. So I find making lists very important, very helpful. If I think of something that's, that's about work when I'm sitting watching TV with, with my wife at night, I'll make a little note in a book and then close the book and that'll, you know, that stops me from thinking about it or waking up at three o'clock in the morning fretting about it. Um, so, so little disciplines like that, little tools and techniques work tremendously, but you do, we all do need them because typically, you know, you, I don't think anyone's born in a disciplined way. I think we have to learn it over time. And I've, I've certainly, I, I learned it through my first company. Uh, and now, as I say, I'm on my fifth and I've got better as it, better at it as I've gone, which is why I, I feel, you know, I've, I'm, I feel now qualified to have written the book Secrets to a Successful Startup because I've learned all the tricks and now you don't, you don't have, so, so anyone who reads the book doesn't have to do it by trial and error anymore. They can just use the same tools and techniques that I've found that work and uh, get to it more quickly than it took me. Right. You know, and you beat me to my next question, really, because I was going to ask how much of a contributor that five-hour workday is to everything else you have going on in life. I saw on your website that you love to travel. You've been to 56-plus countries, which is definitely something I want to talk about in a little bit, but also that you've had 35 years of marriage, which is immaculate, right? That That's absolutely amazing. And um, obviously, that's a major contributor to the fact that um, you know you're, you're working five hours a day right? Uh, you have time for your significant other, you have time for your family and so on and so forth. So um, I would love to go a little bit deeper on that. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I do know, I do have friends who are also entrepreneurs who work probably 12 to 14 hours a day and they're very successful, but they're on their third marriage and the children hate them. <laughs> that's, that's, the, right. that's the choice sometimes we have to make. Well, I don't want that. I, I, I like a balanced life. I love my life. Um, and so, you know, what is a balanced life to me? Well, it is, it's been able to spend as much time as possible with my wife. I mean, you know, I'm very lucky. I know that it doesn't always happen this way, but you know, every time she walks in the room, my, my heart skips a little, not for fear, but for, <laughs> for love. Um, and it's, you know, to still have that, I've known her 40 years, actually still have that after 40 years is an incredible blessing. And I know it's not typical, but uh, I do think having a balanced life has helped that because that no, at no point during my life can, can, can Lynn turn around and say to people, well, he loves his company more than he loves me. That's that it would be the opposite. It would be more likely that my company, that, you know, people who are working around my company would say, well, where the hell is he? We haven't spoken to him in three weeks. Um, and I prefer it that way. So, so, uh, the balanced life is, I think is really, really important. It, it, it keeps me, um, motivated because I want to give Lynn all the best things in life and the best adventures. So I, I'm, more than happy to keep on working and and building and creating and uh, coming up with new ideas and all that sort of thing. Um, and she also, you know, because I'm not stressed and I don't take into the home place all of those negative things, so I don't take it out on her or the dogs or the lifestyle and things like that. Because it's it's a, a sort of quieter environment than you know, Lynn also is very supportive of my businesses instead of perhaps in some cases of my friends, their wives resent the business because it's ruined the marriage. Um, and so again, it requires tremendous discipline to, to, to have the courage to say, okay, enough, that was work. And now I'm switching off. And there are mental techniques you can use to switch off, switch on and off. And they're, they're in my book. Um, and so you can then say, okay, this is now my family time and here's how I'm going to structure my family time. And, and I, I take the same seriousness to, to my to, to my, my whole life as I do to um, building and running a company. Right. That's amazing. Now, I have to ask you, in regards to your heart skipping a beat, do you feel like that's a necessity to, you know, a necessity to see continuously over the course of a relationship? Yeah. I mean, I'm not the best person to talk about relationships because I've just had the one. It's an interesting argument. Who's the best, who's the best advisor on relationships? Someone who's had six or someone who's had one? I don't know. Um, but I can tell you it's, it's good for me. I think that's, I think that's a very natural 
a natural thing. See, you know, the first the first step for me is always. I mean, there's been lots of surveys that's, that show okay, and the result I can cut it all down to the result of the survey, which is sometimes a shock to, for people to hear, is that you know there's a, there's a brilliant there's a book called For Him and For Her, and uh, and uh, at the end of it they ask the, they pose the question if you had to live in a world where you can make one choice it's a world where you can be loved but not respected or you can live in a world where you can be respected but never loved what would you choose and 99.9% of men choose to be respected over love and 100% of women choose to be loved over respect and um, I think that's something that Lynn and I learned very early on um, Lynn respects me and what I do what I bring to the world and I absolutely worship the ground she walks on and so so that that sort of uh, mixture of ingredients seems to be what what works and so you know I still I'm on my toes when Lynn's around. I want to please her. You know, I, I, I love her. So I want to, I want to be, I want to make sure she's happy. That's, that's, so that's a good thing. The, the, that Twitter, the sweaty palms, they can continue a whole life. And that's a good thing. And Lynn, Lynn knows that, you know, it's important for me to have respect, that people respect what I do, people respect who I am. And so she, she sort of has over time, you know, over, over her life, I think, um, adapted her interaction with me to make sure that that's at the forefront and there's a lot of science to back this up i think we just figured it out ourselves fairly early on which is a good thing right i love that i appreciate you sharing that i know that we went from business to relationships now we're <laughs> going to go back to business that that's the beauty of these podcasts so that five hour week or i'm sorry that five hour day um and all the success you've had in business obviously you've sold companies for over a hundred million dollars which is really admirable has yielded you the opportunity to continuously travel and i know that's one thing that you absolutely love so out of the 56 countries you've been to maybe it's even more now what's your favorite place to travel to oh without a doubt it's italy um because i i also i also love good food and good wine so and uh, i don't think there's people will probably get very angry with me saying that people from other countries but but um i don't think there's a better place in the world to get fantastic food and brilliant wine than, than in, uh, in Italy. So I, I love the Tuscany area. I love the city of Florence. And um, if you told me I had to live there for the rest of my life, I'd say, okay, let's go. Ah, I love it. I love it. So I haven't been to Italy yet, but I made it to Europe for my first time in the summer of 2018. And uh, I did 15 days throughout, you know, France. I did all of Paris, the French Riviera, all that amazing stuff. I did Monaco. I did parts of Spain and I did Norway as well. And honestly, I, I have to tell you, I love love being born and raised here in New York City and the food is amazing, but the food in Europe is on a different level. It is absolutely amazing. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I haven't been to Italy yet and I, I promise you I will get there and I'm going to take, take you up on the recommendation of Tuscany and Florence for sure. Yeah, you won't you won't be sorry. That, that's for sure. But you know, the interesting thing about America is, I mean, I've, I've moved all around America too. I've I've lived in Florida, um, Seattle three times, Cal different parts of California three times, and Minnesota. But I've also traveled a lot when I was doing a regular job. Um, you know, America is not, you know, 50 United States. It's really 50 different countries, I find, because the culture of the people, the attitude of the people in every state is so different. I do find the food's different too. Um, I think, you know, you don't have to go to Europe to find diversity. I think it's right here on the doorstep. But maybe because I come from another country, so I bring fresh eyes to it, I notice it where perhaps a lot of Americans don't realize how lucky they are to have such such a vast, both from a, a, a you know, a, a cultural standpoint, but also from a, a, a topographical standpoint, such such a vast country where you can experience so many fantastic things and beautiful mountain ranges, fantastic uh, you know mountain sports available, incredible beaches. I mean, I've, I've, 
I would say the I'm biased perhaps, but I would say the beaches from you know San Diego all the way up to to um, to Seattle are amongst the most beautiful in the world. I've I've travelled all over the world where people wax lyrical about their beaches. I find the ones in America to be as good, if not better, than most. Yeah, listen, we have a lot of beauty here, and I'm I'm truly grateful for you know. And like you said, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not 50 states; it's really 50 countries combined in a way. You know, there yeah. there's a lot of uh, cultural differences throughout each state, and of course, the ones that are closer together may have a lot more similarities than the ones that are coast to coast. But you know, it, it's a beautiful place. But um, you know, one thing about Europe, man, I, I absolutely loved it. And if I could be there a lot more often, I, I most definitely would. So I, I promise you, watch when I when I go to uh, Italy and I'm in Tuscany and I'm in Florence. I'm going to contact you for some some recommendations specifically in those areas. So I'm I'm excited for that. Good. <laughs> I love it. Now, Trevor, let me ask you this. You talk about the new book coming out, Secrets to a Successful Startup. I want to dive into this. I want to amplify this message. I want to let people know why they need to get this book. So, first question to you right off the bat without giving away every single egg that's in the basket. What are the secrets that you're willing to reveal here on this show that will, you know, pique someone's interest to dive a little bit deeper into the book. Right. Well, we, st- we can start at the, at the very beginning because I think it's the most, it's the most important part of starting a startup. Um, uh, so I wrote the book uh, because there's really nothing out there for startups. There's, there's hundreds of management consultant books that, that can help you be a better manager, but that's more for a career than being on your own. It's impossible to know what it's like uh, uh, to start a company until you actually start it. Somebody actually told me that one time and it turned out to be a profound piece of advice. Um, but I find them, so I, so I do a lot of coaching with, with um, entrepreneurs now, and I, I find a mistake is made very early, and it, it really is one of the secrets. Uh, probably it might even be the secret. And, and that is that many, you know, in, in, I do work with China, so I'll put it this way. Uh, I have a lot of, lot of um, work in China. And in China, they look at um, uh, ideas as me too, me better, me first. And if it's, if it's me too, they're not going to invest. If it's me better, you, you, maybe, maybe not. But me first is what do you get, get all excited about. And so I, I tend to think, look at businesses uh, in, in American Europe the same way now. Is it, is it a me too, me better, or me first? And it has to be me first today to be successful. It's no use being another plumber or a slightly better um, hairstylist. The, the, these will not make you multimillionaire. I'm not, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking about a startup. So Secrets to a Successful Startup is not for people who just want a little mom and pop business. It's for people who want to be what I call the new home-based multimillionaires because you can go from, from zero to financial independence really quickly today. It's, 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 it's never been a better time to start a company and there's certainly never been a better time to get financial independence. And so if you can structure it well and do it right from the beginning, you got, you, you'll get there faster basically. And so the key thing is a winning idea. And, and what do I mean by a winning idea? A winning idea, like we said before, is not something that you're good at or something you'd like to do. A winning idea is something that needs fixing. And it's not as easy to come up with a winning idea as it, as it might seem because, you know, when I, when I started my first company, I thought about what am I good at? And I found out that I wasn't good at anything. I'm, I'm rubbish at, at uh, fixing things around the house. I, I, I certainly wouldn't be allowed to go anywhere near someone else's plumbing. Um, so I needed to find something that, that I was good at. And I, I, I had to conclude in the end, I'm not good at anything. And then I found something that needed fixing and it made my blood boil. And it, it happened in a company I was working for. And that was it. So now I have my first company and it's a winning idea. So the very first thing you do is have to come up with a winning idea. And there's, a, there's tools and techniques that I describe in the book for doing that. There's a process for doing that. It's not something that you're left alone by yourself in the woods to come up with an idea. There's an actual system whereby you can, you can figure it out the thing that gets under your skin the most, and that's what you're going to start your first company on. 
And it doesn't matter whether you like it or hate it. It doesn't matter whether you're good at it or bad at it, whether you're qualified or not qualified. Once you identify it, you'll, you'll, never, let, you'll never be at peace until you go and fix it. And by fixing it, you start a company. I love that. That's amazing. Now, what's one thing you would want people that read this book to take away from it? If you could only pick one thing, like what do you want that one takeaway to be? This, there's never been a better time. This is going to go down in history as the time to start your own company because the technology is there to help you do it. It'll, it'll you know, this, these, these times pass once in a lifetime and you have to grab it. Um, and I, I, you know, the people who have understood that message, they range from a 13-year-old girl that I talked to who was working in a sweatshop uh, who now runs her own dance troupe. I mean, it doesn't have to be commercial. It can be in arts and crafts as well. Um, and uh, my favorite actually is an 87-year-old man in Virginia, uh, who was ex-professor of economics at um, North Carolina University one time, I think. And uh, he started his first company at age 87 as, as a result of, of looking at the manus- reading the manuscript for the book. Uh, and now he's two years into his business and he's never had, he says it's the happiest time of his life. And, and, and this is possible because the world has changed. You know, even as short ago as maybe 20 years ago, the way you, start, way you ran a company was, you know, you start locally and you build some, a, a strong local clientele and they refer to the business. And then if you're good enough, you go regionally. And then if you're brilliant, you go nationally. Hardly anybody goes internationally unless you're a conglomerate. Well, today it's all changed. Today, on the first day of your business, you can go global. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. Yeah, for sure. Now, let me ask you this. I want to go a little bit deeper on there never being a better time. Now, I just want to understand what you're saying here because, you know, some people that are listening may say, well, that's debatable, right? Because if you look back, and I'm going to use American history here, if you look back at John Rockefeller, and if you look back at Andrew Carnegie and JP Morgan and Cornelius Vanderbilt, some people may say, well, that was the time to do it, right? Whether that was getting into gas and oil or um, infrastructure and steel and things of that nature versus now where it's tech. Like, do you feel like, you're, you're mentioning there's never a better time because this is the time that we have here on earth to do so, or what, what's your take on that? No, it's because of all those great pioneers like Andrew Carnegie that we have this opportunity. It's because of those great techie guys who invented the, well, the, the, the guys at, uh, at, uh, CERN who invented the internet. Um, it's, it's down to the people who've provided all these apps and tools. It's just so easy now to start a company and go global almost immediately and get your message out to the world. It's, there's never been a time like this before. I mean, even, you know, when I started my first company, it was in 2003, I was 43 years old, which, you know, some people might say it's quite late to start the company. So I think I'm living proof that there's never been a better time. Um, uh, you know, there was hardly any internet in 2003. It was dial-up. Uh, you know, it was, really, it was really quite hard to get going and get started and get things done. Now, um, what used to take me probably a month back in 2003 takes me probably five minutes in 2019. So there's just, there's never been a better time to use technology to reinvent yourself if that's what you want to do. I think there were so many limitations before. If you come out of the, you know, if you're working at home, if you're a homemaker who suddenly starts a venture, it was really hard because the world, the technology in the world changed so quickly. It must've been pretty scary then to find yourself in this technical world, but everybody's used to technology now in, in all kinds of ways. Um, Everybody communicates via WhatsApp and things like this. So people are, people are familiar with the ability to communicate great distances, whereas before it was really intimidating and difficult to do that. Um, I, I think it's, it's more about what the, what the technology of the world offers to help us communicate and help us build a company. You know, I can, I can um, start a company tomorrow and I can hire, you know, four or five vendors to get it running. And this is what I've done five times. And um, I can speak to them all live face to face over the internet and I never have to get on the plane and go see them. And that's, right. that's it's huge. I mean, 
uh, it, it makes a tremendous difference. The, 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 the good side of it is that you can start really quickly and you can get things moving fast. The, the, um, probably the, the better side of it, um, is that you're not using up all that beautiful cash that you need to start a company, hiring people and getting an office building and doing all of these things that are really just a waste of money. Now you can just keep that powder dry and uh, focus on, on more important things like marketing. Right. A hundred percent, man. I, I definitely appreciate that. And I'm going to make sure that the link to grab the book is in the show notes of this episode, but to transition here to get, and these are questions that I ask everyone that hops on the show to end the episode here. They are personal Trevor questions, right? And the first one being, you know, clearly you're very experienced. Clearly you have a, a lot under your belt in the business world and the personal world, things of that nature. So what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Just start. Just and I was given, yeah, and I was given that advice by uh, the guy that built Amgen, which is which is the world's first successful biotech company. He built it from zero, pretty much, to sixty billion. And I was waxing lyrical about one of my business plans. I was having dinner with him. His name was George Rothman. He died unfortunately a few years ago from uh, kidney problems. Um, and and George, he, he held up. He was giving me a hard time actually. Uh, he was he wanted to hire me for something, and he was seeing if I had what it took. And so he put, he held his hand up while I was waxing lyrical about my business plan, and he said, Trevor. You don't know what business you're in until you get into the business. Just start. And it's the best piece of advice I ever had. And it's the best piece of advice I can pass on. Just start because the day you start is not what you thought it was. It's something different. And it's so exciting. And it fills you with, with energy and awe. And you, just, you basically just jump. Just start. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Now, let me ask you the reverse of that question. What's a piece of advice that you were given that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but it ended up proving to be true over time? Uh, don't work with him. He's bad news. <laughs> it was, Interesting. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn told me that I was, I, uh, I had this, I, I wanted to work with this guy who had, an, he had money and he had an idea and, and, uh, I, I liked him and, uh, women's intuition is so strong and it's, I've only gone against Lynn's intuition twice in my life. And that was one. And she's just, I said, how can you possibly know that he's no good? Because you've never met him. You don't, you don't know the first thing about him. She said, just trust me. It's no good. And, um, and he walked, he ran away with the money basically, um, about three months later. So she was absolutely right. So, so uh, uh, never go against your intuition is another piece of advice I guess I would give. And if, if you're lucky enough to have um, a female, female partner, for goodness sake, listen to anything they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, listen, trusting the gut is huge at the end of the day. It's, it's, uh, it really comes down to trusting the gut versus the mind versus the heart in ways. And, um, you know, that, that's in all aspects of life. So I definitely appreciate that reminder. Now, Trevor, I know that you've done many of these podcast interviews and you've been featured on many news outlets, media outlets, however you want to refer to them. What's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? I wish they would ask more about, like you have done, actually. I, I, I um, give you great kudos for talking about the balance of life. I, I think I'm very into uh, uh, the importance of a balanced life, going back to this village-centric mindset. And um, I wish people would ask more about that. And as, you know, because it's it shouldn't be unusual that a guy is married 35 years. That should be the norm. And it, it shouldn't be unusual that a guy can build and sell businesses and 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 still. Lead, lead a balanced life. I think that, you know, if I write another book in the future, it's probably going to be more about that, I think. 
I love that. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and I appreciate the kudos, you know, um, at the end of the day, I feel like success is a lot larger than business, which is why we started the show to decode success in its entirety. You know, when we do many episodes on the specifics of business itself and of, of finances and, you know, all of the components of business, but also on the personal side, whether that's relationships or, um, you know, personal development and being the best version of ourselves. So I definitely appreciate that. And I appreciate the transparency that you've alluded to throughout this episode and your responses. So again, and thank you for that. Now, last question for you, Trevor, and you may have already answered this one, but if you could only give one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? Would that still be just start or is it something different? No, it would be, it would be my mantra, make a positive difference in someone's life. And you, should, you can do this every day, every day, make a positive difference in someone's life and have fun doing it. And you'll be blown away by the things that come your way as a result of that attitude. Yeah, listen, and you've most definitely done that today. And to every single individual that's going to be tuned into this, you know, I definitely appreciate you hopping on here and um, sharing all of your experiences, your insights, your wisdom, things of that nature. You've most definitely made a positive influence in my life. And I'm really excited to amplify this. Now, where can people keep up with you on social? As mentioned, I'm going to make sure that all of your social links, your websites, where they can get the book are in the show notes of this episode. But let me rephrase that question. Where do you hang out the most on social? Is it LinkedIn or is it elsewhere? No, I don't do social media except for I, I do uh, Facebook, but really only private groups. So there's a, you know, it's private groups for the five hour workday for Seekers to a Successful Startup and for my course Transformation, which is about personal growth. Um, that, so I don't, I don't I'm, and that's another common trait of, of the successful. They spend so little time on social media. And if they are on social media, it's not them. It's somebody representing their voice. Right. So, so the way to keep in t- way to keep up to date with anything Trevor G. Blake related is to go to the website, trevorgblake.com. I love that. I'm definitely going to make sure that that link is in the show notes of this episode so people can reach out to you. Everyone that tunes into these episodes loves to make sure that they're getting in contact with the people that maybe ask more questions or deeper questions. So I'm sure you're going to have people hitting your inbox in some way, shape or form saying, hey, I heard you here on Decoding Success. But Trevor, I want to thank you again. Extremely grateful for you hopping on here, having your success decoded and looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the good questions. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, from my guy, my friend, our friend now, Trevor Blake. I want to make sure that you're connecting with Trevor. As mentioned, he's not on social the way that we are, but that doesn't mean you can't get in contact with him. It doesn't mean that you can't support and grab one of his books that will add tremendous value to what you have going on in your life. So find all of that good stuff in the show notes of this episode where you're able to connect with Trevor. Beyond that, if you haven't done so, make sure that you're sharing this episode. Be that beacon of light, that beacon of positivity, that beacon of adding value to someone else's day. You now have the power to do so if you were ever wondering, what can I do for someone today? What can I give? Right here, you can give this episode, you can give the value, the experiences, the insights of a man that has sold businesses for over $100 million, that's had a relationship for over 35 plus years. There's so much goodness within inside of this and if you tuned in this far, clearly you think this is of value. So make sure you're sharing it. Leave that rating and review if you have not done so yet on Apple, iTunes specifically. That means the absolute world to us. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.